Welcome Goddesses. Birth with Love by two mummers, Mel and Sel, St. Magella is a podcast devoted to all who identify as a mother. We are here to evoke inspiration and knowledge while creating a community and a platform where every mother feels connected and heard. We want to shift the focus from the child back to the mother because with a nurtured mother, a nurtured child naturally follows. Join us as we dive headfirst into topics ranging from sex to self-care, with healthy families and a healthy planet always front of mind. We too are mothers, learning, fumbling, triumphing, and we're not afraid to be raw and boldly curious. Let us be that friend that fills your cup after every interaction, because an empowered and happy mother has the potential to change the world. Let's do this. Before we start this episode, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we live, work and raise our children, the Boon people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We would also like to acknowledge that not all mothers will identify as a woman. We will use the collective terms mother and women often, but this is not limited to only those with a womb. It is inclusive of any person who identifies as a mother or a woman, regardless of their sex or gender. Although we can only speak through our experience in heterosexual cisgender homes, we are thrilled that families are diverse and wish for all to feel safe and included in our mama community. Good afternoon, Celeste. Hello, Melissa. How are you traveling? I'm good. I'm in the mood to chat, really. In the mood to chat? Yeah, I am a bit. In the mood for some challenge? No, not that. (laughs) Well, that's what we're chatting about here. It is time for our weekly challenges. Challenges. (laughs) Can you go first? What's your challenge, Celeste? Well, this week. So, um, although I sound really chipper right now, (laughs) which is classic me in the face of heartache chipper in a crisis (laughs) chipper in a crisis um no I've had a very 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 challenging week all round um I've had oh I don't even know how to explain the intensity Mm. of this week and what's occurred in my life um as many listeners who are my friends will know my dad passed away yesterday is when it happened and the week preceding him passing away was a really quite emotional, an emotional roller coaster. Really, um, he was palliative in his home, and he was unconscious for what was about five days. Mm-hmm. So, we it was a really sudden turn from my dad being well and surfing and enjoying his life yes going through cancer treatment but uh not thinking his life was coming to an end when was his last surf yeah I was trying to think of that the other day I think Mm -hmm. it was so he had a couple of hospital admissions recently and that's kind of where it all went downhill but his last surf I think was about six weeks ago wow 
Yes. So, and if you see photos of him a month or two ago, like he's a different man. And then it really shows how quickly the body can just kind of deteriorate. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, very sadly, he passed away yesterday. So my lovely dad, who was only 60, is now not in my life. And I'm 35 weeks pregnant. So... It sounds like if someone had told me that on paper, I would just be like beside yourself, beside myself, mm. thinking about how hard that must be. But really, being in the thick of it, having lost a parent before as well, having lost my mum, I feel really, really sad, but really strong, really comfortable within grief. Mm. Really know how to support myself mm. through it, and as just quite an positive person I see so much beauty in the connection that's found within these times of grief and the connection between my family my me and my daughter me and Tim um Tim and my family me and my brother and all of these amazing these terribly hard times that all of the noise and the crap around you just falls away yeah and being present and being together and laughing when you can and crying when you need to is just something I can't even describe. Like the past week has been so wild, but I wouldn't ever think, say it hasn't been stressful. Mm. It like, almost sounds like a beautiful time yeah, as well. Can I yeah, say that? Yeah, it's like, like a really surreal and special mm. time. And yeah, and I don't feel like my, I don't, my body doesn't feel under stress my baby growing my belly feels like it's nourishing me from the inside out like I feel so not alone yeah which I think is really nice how beautiful not to feel alone in such a time where you could yeah totally like when you're losing people yeah that's a time where you feel really alone but I've felt really 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 joyful that I have Mazzy and a baby in my belly and that as I transition from being the kid myself, because now my parents are both gone, I at least have a family of my own, mm. which is which really, is wonderful, which is lovely. I'm so. I guess I can say I admire you. I admire your strength. I I've been in tears more than you have, <laughs> from what I've seen. Yeah. Um, and it's just wonderful to see such strength. Um, in a female, in a mother, it's empowering. Mm. And I hope that anyone who's ever listening, who's felt like everyone's grief is so different, you don't need this is my this is your this, way. This is my life. way yeah. of grief. And I have had some a lot of moments of tears, like lots and lots of tears, and lots of sadness and anger and why me's and all of those things. But um, yeah, it's all a part of it. And however mm. you choose to grieve is the right way to grieve for Mm. you. And I just feel really lucky that I have so many beautiful friends Mm. and other family members to support me. And I'm, I really honor that I'm going through a really hard time in my life. And my response to that is to have baths, have naps, except that if I don't want to get out of bed all day, I don't have to. Yeah. I think you took about uh, 20 minutes to moisturize yesterday when we were going to meet. I got out of bed at 10 yesterday, which is very rare for me. (laughs) And 
I just, cause I just am honoring that whatever feelings coming up at the time is the right feeling to have mm. and to call on what I need. And thankfully I can still get acupuncture and have a bath and get a yeah. massage if I need to. And Tim haven't been home because construction's been closed has been just like the most perfect blessing perfect time because i don't have to take on the mother load Mm. as much (laughs) (laughs) there's a little smirk just for those listeners as much as much (laughs) was the disclaimer um there's still a mother load but yeah so that's me a big Mm. week Mm. what about your challenge Mm, pales in comparison (laughs) (laughs) I guess my challenge has just been dealing with um, a little bit of anxiety, not really mental. I'm not really um, ha- having anxious thoughts. Mm. It's just, I a think feeling. it's just the pregnancy uh, feeling of not being able to breathe perhaps triggers a bit of bodily anxiety. Um, mm. So sleeping has been a bit hard and and I'm not ashamed to say I've been using CBD oil um, to help ease that anxiety, which has been mm. fantastic. Yeah. I can't recommend it enough. And I wasn't going to share it because yeah. I expect a lot of um, other mothers and, and people to perhaps judge me. But you know what? It's working for me. And I think if um, my baby experiencing my anxiety is worse than any effects of, of a natural, you know, non um, psychosis or what, what yeah, do they call it? Non-hallucinogenic. Yeah. It's obviously got the THC element. But it hasn't got cannabis. the so... It's not the mind-altering Not psychoactive. Effect. Psychoactive. That's, that's, yeah, that's the word. Um, yeah, any harm that that could induce is, I don't think, anywhere near as the harm that anxiety... So anyway, so that's what's been going on with me, but I'm good otherwise. Yeah, but that's an amazing share, I think, for mothers to just, again, give yourself permission mm. to use your intuition to make choices about your body yeah. and your baby, especially in a time like yeah. now when everyone is trying to control and project their opinions on others about totally. what they should do with their bodies and their babies. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you. (laughs) In today's episode, we speak to Tessa Weedman. Tessa is a paediatric speech pathologist. She has a Bachelor of Health Science and a Master of Speech Pathology and is currently completing her PhD. She works as a speech pathologist in Melbourne with preschool and school-aged children. Tessa is one clever cat and had so much fantastic information to share with us today. We hope you enjoy. Today's episode is sponsored by Tilda and Moo, a Mornington Peninsula female-run business of handmade bibs. These bibs are just gorgeous, full of colour and design in such a beautiful natural aesthetic. I loved the Tilda and Moo bibs, how easy they were to wash, and they were so fantastic through that really dribbling period when you had a, yes. a perfect, a beautiful outfit on your baby and they just, but they just had that clear drool. I know. And these bibs are made of cotton and terry toweling and they're so handy for that period. You can find these bibs online or at markets, but search on Instagram at Tilda and Moo, T-I-L-D-A-A-N-D-M-O-O. Welcome, Tess. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Loving being here via Zoom. 
Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, your family and your career to start us off? Sure. So I'm a paediatric speech pathologist. So I work with preschool and primary school age um, students as well as some teenagers in secondary school. Uh, most of my work is in children's language and literacy, speech language and literacy um, and social communication. And I'm doing a PhD just part-time at the moment, plodding along very slowly through La Trobe Uni. And my PhD is looking at the role that early childhood teachers, so kinder teachers or preschool teachers, have in supporting oral language and emergent literacy skills. So I've done a lot on shared book reading and um, the role that, yeah, how teachers support those skills in preschool settings. So would you say that you're specialising in that age then, that where you're heading, like that preschool? Uh, well, actually, a lot of my a lot of my clinical work now is actually with school age children. A lot of them started potentially as preschoolers, and now I'm still seeing them for various reasons. Um, but definitely both, really preschool and um, preschool and primary age, definitely. Cool. And did you want to? You're also just started a little Instagram page. That did you want to tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yes. So I've started um, an Instagram page called The Core Four. I'm on Instagram as The Core Four Learners. Feel free to add. Uh, I haven't been very frequent with the posts, shall we say, but um, been a little bit busy. But the long-term aim post-PhD is to have a website supporting parents and preschool teachers and other allied health professionals around four core areas of children's development in preschool. So language, um, early literacy, play skills and social skills. Amazing. Looks like you're doing a lot. (laughs) It's heavy. Wearing a few hats at the moment, yes. For those who might not know, what is exactly the role of a speech pathologist? So a speech pathologist role is actually very broad. Uh, The role of a speech pathologist begins um, right at when children are born. Um, For example, children that are born as premature babies and they're in the NICU right up until um, end of life with patients that might have various neurological conditions such as strokes, Parkinson's, motor neuron. Um, So the role is quite broad um, with the paediatric um, paediatric some um, speech pathologists might work in the areas of paediatrics um, feeding and swallowing. Um, more of what I do supporting children with their speech, which is their articulation of certain speech sounds, so working on the clarity of their speech, working with children's language, which um, is very complex, but to put it simply, you've got your understanding of language, so understanding of words and sentences, to understand and follow instructions and then you've also got expressive language which includes um, your ability to use words and combine words into sentences so your grammar your word endings um, and but we know that not all children use spoken language so also helping children communicate um, sometimes through pictures or through a different communication device or communication system. Mm, so interesting so wow. interesting to think that that's a role of a speech pathologist starts well before there's any speech 
you know <laughs> yeah well because children's communication starts before they talk that before they start talking so even though um children might be pre-verbal or pre-linguistic so they haven't started using words yet most children will say their first word around the age of 12 months um but for some children we need to work on communication um before um before the words have come yet because there's a delay in other aspects of their communication as well yeah I remember when we were in hospital we saw a speech pathologist in the hospital for Mazzy for the feeding so they had some input on because I suppose I don't know why it's because she wasn't feeding her full bottles or something like that Mm -hmm. so they had some input on Really, it was like a whole specialist around even just the behavioural things that you can do around a baby to promote good feeding. Mm. So that was like a world probably away from what you do. It is. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's really broad. So swallowing is a really key area of speech pathology. Um, A lot of, I've got a lot of friends who work with adults and they work in a hospital setting supporting um, people who have had um, people who have difficulties we call it dysphagia um, difficulties with swallowing because if you think about some of the um, some of the nerves that um, that we use for speech sorry as well as swallowing I was trying to think of some cranial nerves I'm like oh I'm not very good with my cranial nerves anymore, <laughs> so I won't go there um, but yeah there's often um, co-difficulties there mm, comorbid yeah. difficulties I'm really conscious of my swallowing right now <laughs> <laughs> You know when you get like that, you're just like, <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> so today we'll probably focus mainly on the age group of zero to five years. Um, when would you think it's an appropriate time for a parent to seek out the advice of a speech pathologist? Um, yep. So, and if, should they go public or private? So, like, can you explain how, perhaps yeah. how is it a public thing? Is it a private thing? It's a lot of things. So I'll start with when to see a speech pathologist. Um, If you're concerned about your child's um, swallowing, I would, you could seek out a speech pathologist who specialises in stuttering, uh, sorry, (laughs) swallowing. Mm -hmm. Um, If your preschooler is stuttering, that's another area where stuttering is best um, targeted during preschool age before a child starts school. Once a child starts school and they get older, it's actually more difficult to treat Mm -hmm. stuttering. Mm -hmm. Um, If your child is frustrated by their communication, so if people are are having difficulty understanding what they're saying, that could be a good indicator that um, the child might need some speech pathology sessions If your child is late to start talking, um, some children will essentially catch up to their peers without um, intervention by age three, but some children will go on to have um, a language disorder, which we call developmental language disorder. And for those children, you don't want to miss out on key early interventions. So I think that if you're concerned and you have a worry, um, that's warranted and you should seek out support from a speech pathologist and they might say this is normal and then you feel great about it and then you move on absolutely so I've got um some parents who've come in because they've been really worried 
and they haven't had to come back. I've had other parents who will come in, I'll say, let's monitor, come back in two to three months. And then they come back and things might be, things might have picked up and the child doesn't need any therapy. Um, some parents, if the child's late talking, they might need a few sessions. The child responds really well and then we monitor. Mm. Um, um, but I think that, yeah, if you if you are concerned, always pick up the phone. Um, you can always speak to a speech pathologist on the phone before we add them to the wait list to find out more information as well. As to whether it's appropriate or not. And so are there, are there like particular signs like by age X, they should be speaking X words, mm. X number of words and things like that. that. Yeah, so most children will say their first words around 12 months. Um, and then, you know, by age two, uh, if like, for example, if your child isn't hasn't said their first word by 18 months and even before that, if they're not using gesture and they're not babbling, using all that baby jargon, I would get in contact with a speech pathologist and yeah, by age two, if they have less than 50 words and they haven't started putting words together into really short phrases, like mum, go, dad, no, whatever it might be. <laughs> um, I would, dad, go. Yeah, yeah, dad, go, mum's day. Yeah, I would, um, I would um, just, uh, get in touch with a speech pathologist and we would give strategies around supporting um, parents and caregivers and other people who are in that child's life with um, stimulating more more expressive language. And on that too, because you've got to remember that language, um, a part of it is uh, spoken language or expressive, but it's also important that if your child is um, having difficulty understanding and following instructions um, or you're, yeah, you're concerned about their comprehension as well, um, that's also important to, to get in touch. And also making sure as well that their hearing's all good because I had, I think it was my cousin or something like that, they didn't know that he actually was like 80% deaf. Mm. Um, so they were thinking like there was actually a lot of other things going on as well, but they were really wondering like why is he talking and if they hadn't actually had his ears checked to see if he could actually hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so children's hearing is checked at birth, um, yeah. but then after that, um, unless there's some really obvious signs that the child is having ear infections often their hearing isn't checked. So we always recommend that if a child comes in and they haven't had their hearing checked recently, we always recommend it. It's always one of my first recommendations. Mm. So if you're on the wait list and your child is late with their talking or the clarity of their speech is like other people are finding it really hard to understand what they're saying, um, I would, yeah, go and get the hearing checked. A lot of the paediatric audiologists, like the kids find it fun. (laughs) So I I got mine checked when I was 10 because I wasn't listening (laughs) to my teacher and I just kept saying, I couldn't hear you. I could. (laughs) You little little trickster. (laughs) Yeah. And sometimes um, your child might still be able to hear what you're saying but um, they're finding it difficult to hear certain frequencies. So certain speech sounds, for example, 
s's or z um, and some other sounds um it, it's quite muffled for them so they're having difficulty with hearing certain sounds so yeah definitely hearing um hearing is a big one so moving to how do you choose between public or private speech pathology and how does that yeah, work is there a long wait list for both Yes. So with um, trying to get services for a speech pathologist, if you um, if you want to go private, you do not need a referral from a GP. So anyone can go and see um, a private speech pathologist. And if you're trying to find a speech pathologist in your area, go to Google, type in speech pathology Australia, find a speech pathologist. You can put in your postcode, um, click a few buttons around like age and it'll come up with a whole list of local speech pathologists my recommendation is to go on more than one waiting list because at the moment there's a really long wait for speech pathologists not enough of us um so yeah private that's your option um some children are eligible for five sessions of speech pathology per year through medicare it's not it doesn't cover the full amount it covers I think you get a rebate of about 53 or 54 dollars um but not all children are eligible for medicare usually it's a professional for example audiologist or occupational therapist and you can in private practice as well get a rebate if you have private health insurance and it covers speech pathology so again check with your private health provider if you have one um public so if you go public um the so there's public speech services available as well, generally through community health centres. So you can find out through your local government council. And that's typically for children who um, there's usually quite an intake process. And it's for children that are having preschool children that have speech and or language difficulties, um, maybe stuttering as well. And children that have um, more of a global delay or difficulty in more than one developmental area. So, for example, their physical milestones, they might be, um, they might have a delay with their fine and gross motor skills or um, could be um, social communication as well. Those children are eligible um, for early intervention is funded through um, NDIS, which is the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's quite a process as well to then get NDIS funding and it might cover part of the funding that you get, but sorry, part of the therapy that you have throughout a year or it might just cover a small number of sessions. Once the child is seven, some children will um, no longer be eligible for early intervention because they don't have a diagnosed disability, which you need past the age of seven to qualify for NDIS. It's recognising the importance of early intervention for children. So by getting the early intervention in the preschool years or before the age of seven, um, those children, we hope, um, won't need therapy as they're older. Yeah, more of that preventative um, early intervention model rather than that lifelong care. So am I right in assuming that um, in, in your sessions with the children... It's as much um, educating the parents as well as to what they should be doing exercise-wise with them and, you know, I, I don't know what you actually do in the session. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no. Um, so especially with the earlier, with the littlies, so 
with the you know the late talkers, the two-year-olds, two and a half, even up until the age of you know, up until the age of three, it's more about working with the parent. So you've got the cute little toddler there, <laughs> but you're actually training the parent to deliver the therapy at home. Even when the children are older, um, coming, having a, you know, a fortnightly or weekly speech therapy session isn't going to be as effective as if you can tr- work with the family or the parents, caregivers, to implement that those strategies at home if it's for late talking or to follow up with um, some of the speech sound exercises for a bit of homework as well. Yeah. Yeah. So what age, or there's probably not a real cutoff, but what age do you see children just by themselves then without their parents in there? Because you do see some by themselves, don't you? Uh, I do. So I go into schools and I go into kinders. And when I'm going into those settings, the um, the parents aren't present. A lot of the time I'm working there with their integration age. So a lot of the children that I work with school age have funding through school. So they have an aid in the classroom for part of their um sometimes five days a week, sometimes just two or three days, depending on the level of funding that they have. So in those examples, I'm working with the teacher or with the aide. Um, I've got some children who at school age, they want to, they don't want their parents in the room. So parents will come in at the beginning. I'll spend some time with the, with the child and then the parents come in at the end and we go through it. Um, for some of them, their attention is also they find it easier to focus when their parent isn't in the room. But most of the time um, I'm working with the parents. I like it when the parents are there, they're watching, they're involved. If you're working with a toddler, there's often other kids. So you've got to think about how you can get them involved in the therapy as well. Like they, yeah, they because they just think you're playing with them. It's so much fun for them. They're like, oh, I get to go see that lady again that has, you know, all the toys. Um, <laughs> they think it's so much fun. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like they're not in any pain, like they're having the time of their lives majority of the time. Not always the school age ones. Um, they don't always love coming to see me as much. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but they're great as well. (laughs) Uh, What are the most common issues that you see in ages zero to five? Definitely uh, children that are late with their talking and communication milestones. So parents will come in and they'll be concerned that their child isn't talking at the same rate as a sibling was at that age or um, someone else from the mother's group. They might have got been referred from the maternal and child health nurse. Very good resource, Um, especially for new parents. I would encourage people to... I would encourage parents to go to those sessions with the maternal and child health nurse. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, children that are stuttering, children that are having difficulty with the clarity of their speech um, and children that are having difficulty with their social communication or pragmatics. So those children might um, have difficulty playing. We do a lot around play because it's zero to five it's very play-based therapy so we do a lot around supporting children to develop their play skills developing um their I'm communication and mazzy <laughs> how they play at the moment yeah. we need you to come analyze our children <laughs> 
Uh, to be honest, I can't help analyzing and uh, I haven't met your daughter, Mel, but Nazzy's right on track. She <laughs> is a little talker. And Celeste, I must say, um, for the listeners, um, me and Celeste went to high school together and we're friends. Uh, Celeste is great at talking to Mazzy in a way that promotes language and promotes vocabulary so so Celeste is a great talker almost like not baby talk or just how is she doing it I I always explain I've always explained every little boring thing that I've done like I'm not just doing something I'm like I'm getting the fork out the drawer yes (laughs) yeah so we um we often call it self-talk so you're talking about what you're doing as they're watching so instead of just going to the cupboard and yeah getting out the crackers you're like oh crackers and you know (laughs) as as the child is playing and they're holding the ball being like oh ball throw ball so talking about what they're doing as they do it talking about what they're holding um that's really good because that helps children learn words mm-hmm. if you don't talk to your child um ever <laughs> uh, we would encourage you to start talking to them and talking about what they're doing and playing with them so that's where a lot of our work comes around supporting sometimes supporting parents with yeah the interaction between them and their child and the play that's not to say though I've got parents that have brilliant communication and that's not to put any guilt on parents because lots of children um, have speech and language issues and pragmatic and literacy and a whole range of issues and it's not nothing that the parent has or hasn't done it's unexplained or genetic or in relate associated with a you know biomedical condition and also I feel like um an important note would be to start that kind of talking when they're a baby because even though you're not expecting them Mm. to talk back to you when they're just a little baby. I think a lot of parents can get really um, easily just like they're, they're kind of just like a little blob there. So because they're not doing so much when they're really little. Because they're not interactive. That you don't yeah. talk to them. But I remember being really conscious of talking to Mazzy and like telling her all words that I absolutely knew. She had no understanding of what I was <laughs> saying and no idea. But I, like when she was a month old, I was saying the words of things that I was holding and what I was doing. Brilliant. And, yeah, that connection that connection between the parent or the caregiver and important in those early stages. So, for example, when the child is, they might not be talking to show that they're um, communicating with you, but they can still be communicating by looking at you and, um, you know, smiling and, you know, by you smiling back at them or um, talking back to them, it's encouraging that it's getting that turn-taking and that um, joint attention or shared reference going. Yeah. Okay. Another thing that I've been doing, I've been considering, when I read Sadie a book, some books <laughs> How she loves books. By the yes, way. she's a little bookworm. Um, some books are using words that I wouldn't use in day to day life. And love that you brought this up because my PhD topic is essentially how to read to children in a way that promotes language and literacy. So keep wow. going. You know, like there would there would be a word that I wouldn't use, like um, or maybe I would use kerfuffle, but like maybe yeah, and I'd 
I'd be tempted to replace the word with something that she'd understand, but I've thought about it and gone, no, this is an opportunity for her to learn that word or just hear it. And, um, mm. and yeah, even like something even like perfect, animals and yeah. things as well, because it's not like you're like walking yes. around being like hippopotamus, like because you're not seeing any hippopotamus, so you're not talking about a hippopotamus until you're reading a book about a hippopotamus. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I love books. Um uh, I could talk about this for hours because <laughs> I've uh, spent every day of my life, you know, researching it and things like that. But that is one of the brilliant things about books. Mm. Children are exposed to new words that they wouldn't be exposed to during everyday interactions, new concepts, uh, often the grammatical structures without getting yes. too technical. If you think about how we write versus how we talk it's very different so the way I talk is a lot less formal than say the journal articles that I have to write if I spoke like that um <laughs> I would be falling asleep. Uh, <laughs> a bit boring so yeah so it's a really good opportunity to yeah depending on um the strategies you might use with different age groups um changes a little bit but it is a fabulous um opportunity to support word knowledge so understanding of words um and then instead of always just reading the story to children it's really supportive of their language skills to talk about the book make comments about the book follow their lead so if the child is pointing at I don't know, the picture of the dog, you'd be like, oh, the dog is jumping. Or um, you can ask them questions about the story. You're like, um, where, can, where is the moon? Mm. in the? I, you know, because a lot of yeah. the books are really short little things. So to kind of drag it on, I always do like a bit of a like, where is this in this picture? Or what's mm. that thing doing over there? What sound does that make? Yeah. 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 Yep. So you can ask them questions about the story if it's older children or you can yeah ask them questions about things that they can see on the page and not always just asking questions though you can comment on things that they can see and things that they're interested in Mm -hmm. um even while I'm here having my little plug about um the importance of book reading (laughs) um to promote their early literacy skills you know you can help them turn the page be like oh, I'm turning the page or you know this book's called spot and yeah and children getting children involved in the story um helps them be interested in the story like lift I love with the toddlers exactly. and the early ones lift the flat books um learning oh, about the different textures ones. Yes. <laughs> love those yeah they're great so um and, then, and when yeah, it's this- a really long boring book sometimes I condense it so short to what I know <laughs> and just go oh yep Louis did that went to the beach yep found shell I've read this 1000 fucking times so the end <laughs> yeah so you know and you can get when she gets a bit older you can encourage her to tell the story and yes. um yeah so repeated readings of books um I know it um it's not it's always the most fun secret. for the for the adults but kids quite like it and then yeah that you can ask them questions and uh like you know when you were talking about different words the repeated exposure can help with um their word learning too yeah yeah and then i will be you do actually see that now mazzy will pick up those books that she's had on repeat that we've honestly (laughs) if i swear if i see bluey at the beach (laughs) beach book again in my life i will just kill myself um <laughs> Blue at, <the> <laughs> at the beach but now she can open it up and 
completely every Every. right page she can almost mimic exactly what it says like Mm. she obviously can't read she's two but she knows Mm. what that page says with Jemima and the bloody yeah she's memorized it yeah and then you know with older children like older children even school-aged children as well reading to children while they're learning to read is really helpful for them to still be exposed to new words and yeah that shared reading experience is um good bonding time as well so yeah like reading to children smile the plug won't um what they will not learn to read um by being read to Mm -hmm. children that's why children go to school they need you know explicit instruction around learning to read this that's a whole other podcast but um but reading to them will build their language skills which helps support their literacy and for a lot of children that I work with who um find reading difficult when they're school age um it's important that they're still being read to so that they're still being exposed to those grammatical structures and those new words and those new concepts. Mm. So, sorry, excuse my ignorance here, but when did we learn to read? Prep? I think prep, yeah, yeah, prep. Um, so what has happened? when you're in, yeah, so, <laughs> I thought I yeah. so when you're in prep, that's when you um, begin learning to read. Um, as I mentioned before, there's some early literacy skills we call them emergent literacy skills so they're some of the early literacy skills that children acquire before they start learning to read themselves and that's just even little things like knowing that um the role that a book is a book um you know it has a front cover it's made up of words those squiggly words squiggly lines on a page actually mean something they're not just there for fun um yeah so all of those um early literacy skills help children learn to read once they start school so a lot of parents are really interested in the effects of dummies and bottles and thumbs and so things in our mouth Mm. in our children's mouths yeah yes yes love that one so Um, Yeah, so dummies, it's always a bit of a contentious one. Um, There are some pros and cons to dummy use. So it's important for parents to be aware of um, some of the benefits, but also the negatives in dummy use. So um, some of the benefits, um, well, dummies have a role in comforting distressed babies and, you know, settling children a lot of the children that I work with um, in preschool have difficulties with sleeping difficulties with a lot of things so a dummy can be quite comforting for them Mm -hmm. Um, and then dummies have also been found to reduce incidents of SIDS so that's something else as well um and there is research on that but there's also negatives um maybe yeah yeah they they actually don't know entirely why i think i think it was something like oh i think that one of the ideas around it was that if they're still sucking it they can't go into as deep as the sleep okay i think that's like because breastfed babies are also a reduction risk for SIDS and I think it's something to do with that as well okay I'm not as aware of the kind of 
yeah. research or mechanisms on that. But I do know that, yeah, there is um, a link there. Um, but then there's also the negatives of dummy use. So there's an increased risk of otitis media, which is back to those middle ear infections that we see a lot of kids for, um, for speech, um, speech and language issues. And then there's also dental issues that are associated with dummy use. So, um, and also if you think about if a child has a dummy in their mouth throughout the day, um, children, um, you know, little ones at that age are babbling a lot and babbling is a precursor to speech. So if if they're not making those, if they're not, if it's preventing babbling and it's preventing opportunity for them to, um, practice different speech sounds they make at the front of their mouth um, but the evidence like the research behind it is inconclusive um, there needs to be more research in this area so giving out really like you must do this by this age um, is a little bit difficult to do um, but yeah there has been um, you know research a few years ago that showed that it doesn't impact children's speech disorders, um, one type of speech disorder that's more of like a rule-based speech disorder where children swap sounds with other sounds. So, you know, children that might say um, wabbit instead of rabbit and some of those types of errors. Mm-hmm. However, there is some research to point that it, it can be linked with some more atypical speech sound errors. And if you think about what um, prolonged dummy use can do, it pushes the front teeth out and the results in the child having an open bite and then the tongue um, can, um, yeah, the tongue's more more likely to have a lisp and some other articulation, so pronunciation of certain sounds. So if you talk to speech pathologists and dentists, we don't particularly love dummies after you know two um twos of age um some people will say to get rid of the dummy before then some will say three like i said it's really inconclusive but if you can try and minimize it after um you know after the child is a couple of years old i would be trying to do that yeah and and is that same with thumb so um trying to stop them from using their thumb yeah well it's the thumb is essentially doing the same as what the dummy's doing because it's something else that's in the mouth and in those um, examples the child's tongue instead of um, sitting at the top of like the roof of the mouth on the hard palate the tongue is in that forward resting position which can lead to um, dental dental concerns Mm. oh and oh yeah no I already mentioned about um yeah children that um use um dummy use has been linked with yeah increased risk of middle ear infections so they're two areas we see children that have um history of middle ear infections and we see children that have um history of um you know they've got that open bite and that tongue thrust so yeah interesting my sister had um she used her thumb for a long time and she had grommets put in and she had all kinds of inner ear issues. Um, I yeah. wonder if that was all linked to the same kind of cause. <laughs> yeah, Did she have? So interesting mm. that the ear infections, mm. like that there's increased risk of ear infections from dummies. I really had never even thought, thought about that. Yeah. Mm. Um, did, oh, you don't, 
it is your sister have um, her like large tonsils and adenoids? Yes, adenoids. There's something to do with adenoids. Yeah, yeah. Um, we see lots of children that have present with um, the ear infections, the mouth breathing, um, large adenoids and tonsils. She had just like um, a small percentage of hearing loss as well. So yeah. we noticed she was watching TV and not responding. And, yeah, I just remember she was yeah. free. Yeah. I've also, with the dummy and the thumb sucking, I've also had some kids where they've come in and they've have, they have an open bite, which has resulted in a little bit of a lisp, um, and then they've stopped the dummy use and their teeth have actually corrected themselves without oh, wow. any dental. Mm. Um, but, but I've also had kids that... Um, you know, have had a dummy for a long time and haven't had any speech-related issues or dentition. So it comes down to, like, how often is that dummy in the child's mouth? Is it all day and is it all night? But also um, keeping in mind, you know, is it going to cause World War Three removing that dummy? It's not always really clear-cut. So, yeah. yeah, it's about problem-solving with the parent assessing that child, having a look at what's happening in their mouth, um, what's happening with a yeah, whole range of things. Yeah. And, like, when's the best opportunity to perhaps get rid of that dummy? Is it pre them understanding? Um, like, mm. is it like I, f- I found it really easy with Mazzy because she was just like a, a baby. I just kind of. I don't remember her in a dummy. No, she pretty much mm. only had a dummy in just hospital. And then she just didn't really like it. Then mm. I thought, oh, this is a perfect opportunity to just. Get, get rid of it um, before she even knows about it. Well, um, children, de- well, they develop this thing called object permanence. So it's that awareness that um, something is something that was there is now gone. <laughs> so, um, and they can get more attached to it. It can become more of a habit. Yeah, we should look up when that is, when they yeah. cross over to knowing what object impermanence is. Yeah. Because obviously there's an age. Yeah, and, um, you know, but then I've also had, it's it's really, this is why it's also mixed and everyone has different advice on it. Um, some other people have also said, well, if the child is um, using a dummy and, you know, you can remove a dummy but you can't remove a child's thumb. So, yes. yeah, it's, it's really around problem solving with, that family yeah yeah we were doing the nail polish the disgusting tasting nail oh, oh. Saying on the thumb. no 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 sorry i was talking about my sister oh your sister <laughs> I, was like, I didn't ever see no, that I, wasn't on the thumb. No. Oh, I started sucking my thumb when i was um older way way older like six or something because I saw my cousin doing it so I'd never sucked my thumb my whole entire young <laughs> life and then my cousin mm. was sucking her thumb so I got into the thumb sucking influence obviously way past speech so that it didn't affect my speech it, right. it definitely affected my teeth yeah i got buck teeth and have needed to have braces so that was amazing. okay so <laughs> celeste has done her research here yeah um, at around eight months old is when your baby um is aware of object permanence yeah so if um, you whip the dummy out from them before then well you, it's probably going to be easier it might be easier mm. and um i know as well with dummies that um with dummies you want to if you're choosing to breastfeed it's better to have 
breastfeeding established before introducing yes. a dummy as well. So I don't know if you have that advice, as, if you give out that advice. That is definitely advice. Yeah. 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 We had a great chat with um, a lactation consultant. She said exactly that. I yes. listened to that episode, actually. Oh, yeah. very good. <laughs> <laughs> so we had lots of questions from our listeners. Um, was The first one was, stutters when is a stutter normal and is it a cause for concern so lots of children will begin stuttering usually between that two to three age when they have a big uh spurt with their language with their language development they start you know using a lot more words they start talking in sentence in you know in short sentences so it's quite common for children to have a stutter um, that's usually onset, what we call onset, so when it begins. And um, some children, the stuttering will go away by itself without therapy, but for some children it won't and it'll stick around for longer and those children need intervention. But if, um, yeah, so there's, again with stuttering, they don't, no, oh, they're doing a lot of research on um, the causes of stuttering, but there is a strong genetic link. So if um, there's a parent, um, grandparent, cousin, whoever it may be that um, has stuttered in the family and is related to the child, that can be an indicator that we might want to treat the stuttering earlier. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, with stuttering, if the child is a you know, if they're four and they're going to school next year, I would be wanting to treat the stuttering in preschool age because it gets harder to treat as children get older and it's linked with anxiety. So children who are stuttering are more likely to develop anxiety because of their stuttering as they get older into adulthood, adolescence, adulthood. And stuttering, does it range from like repeating a word constantly? Like I think I've, I've started seeing Sadie go, uh, the um uh the, the 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 ball but I've also heard people stuttering in a word mm. you know where they say part of the word is that is that yeah so some children will repeat this a sound so it might be like mum some children will repeat the whole word some children will repeat a little bit of a phrase oh, so children stuff. will often stutter at the beginning of a sentence, so like at the start of a sentence. Thinking of it. Uh, so that's often what they're like, oh, parents will often say, oh, she's not stuttering, she's just thinking about what she wants to say or she's just excited and we're like, yes, she's she's stuttering. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, but like I said, the treatment in preschool is really effective. So um, in Australia we've got really like, if you think about research and they've had multiple randomised control trials, like really high-level evidence to demonstrate the effectiveness of stuttering treatment in preschool. So once you start, um, it can be more difficult with some children. And like I mentioned, it's now often the clients and it's not as straightforward that it's just an isolated issue. It's often, you know, stuttering and grammar and vocabulary and whole range of things but yeah for stuttering if you're 
concerned and yeah if your child's been stuttering for a few months I would just go and see a speech pathologist to like I said get that initial contact um often when children start stuttering it fluctuates a lot so the stuttering might almost like come on what might feel like within one day and that's often the case for you know a third of children who begin stuttering but then a week later it's it's almost gone and then it comes back. Um, that's very common when children first begin stuttering. But if the stuttering's the same, like the frequency or the intensity of it's not fluctuating a whole lot, that can be another indicator that I would begin treatment. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's good. And I think you answered this one before a 15 month old who's only speaking in sounds only a few words that's you kind of said under 18 months if they haven't really said any words was that around that yeah so if a child's 18 months and they don't have any words yet um I would recommend uh going to see a speech pathologist so did you mention that question the child already has a few words. Did you, is that what you said? Speaking in sounds and only a few words. Oh, okay, yeah. Probably more um, speaking in sounds, I'd probably want to unpack that a little bit more. So is the child speaking in sounds but combining sounds like it's babbling, like ma, 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 or is it more just individual sounds like eh, eh, eh? Mm. Um, I'd probably want to explore that a little bit more. But, yeah, if the child doesn't have, you know, if it, if it's only a couple of words at 18 months, it might be worthwhile just having, like I said, that initial appointment with the speech pathologist to make sure that, um, you know, the child's had their hearing checked um, and, you know, we might give some strategies just to push that, um, you know, just to encourage more um, support with their language development. The next one, I actually don't know what it is, so I'm going completely vague, but lip tie information. Uh, lip tie, yep. Yeah. So some children have a lip tie. Some children have like a, cleft, a like a cleft. No, that's different. Oh. So cleft lip is that. when the child. Oh, that thing. Okay. Y- yeah. <laughs> what, is the, thing. what is that? Uh, then that anatomical name for that thing. <laughs> that is the lip it's tie. It's broken. Sorry, what was that? Like there's, I don't know <laughs> oh, how to explain it without. Yeah, um, I hope I'm saying it right. Um, so with the tongue tie, we call it ankleoglesia. Um, but, yeah, there's, you know, you talk about the labial frenulum, the lingual frenulum, there's a whole range of names. But if I keep it simple for listeners, you've got, you can have a cheek tie, you can have a lip tie, and you can have a tongue tie. So tie. with. Wow. What? <laughs> so. <laughs> Tongue ties, um, tongue ties, they're probably more common. There can be an issue if it affects movement. Um, so it's restricting the movement of the child's tongue um, or function. So it has been associated with breastfeeding issues and oral hygiene. So some children might have difficulty clearing the food from, you know, from their lips if they're messy that we often parents are like, oh, it's really messy eater. Um, but if you're having concerns around breastfeeding and, you know, you have concerns around that area, I would consult a lactation consultant or a speech pathologist who works in that area because it might 
be around you know positioning or latch or a few other things there isn't actually much evidence to indicate that tongue ties cause speech difficulties so usually these children have typically developing speech and are able to produce sounds needed for talking um, however there are some cases where children have very limited movement which may impact you know articulation of sounds but you would want to be assessed by a speech pathologist and we will look at the functional impact. Um, there's been a bit of a, not a movement, but um, there, there's a lot of children having tongue tie releases because people think that it's going to cause, cause speech difficulties, but there's very limited research on that. Yeah. It's so, a bit controversial, isn't it? Yeah, well, there's tongue ties getting released in case they cause breastfeeding issues instead of if they are like, are they? Yeah. Yeah. Have you decided to do that to, you know? Yeah, because they're actually, for speech, there actually um, isn't really much evidence on it. And there are still some risks associated with tongue tie release, you know, around the laser and things like that. Um, but yeah, there has been, I've, I've noticed lip tie and tongue tie in kids' mouths and parents didn't even know it was there. I'm like, oh yeah, tongue tie, lip tie. They're like, oh, do we need to do anything? I'm like, well, we're speaking very clearly. So no, you don't need to do anything about it. Um, but yeah, there's some cases where, um, maybe it's, it's hard to explain, but it's where the movement's restricted because of (laughs) a muscle in within the cheek towards the lip or. Um, it can be towards the tongue. So some children have posterior tongue tie as well. Yeah. I can feel that connective tissue from the back of my tongue and my, into my cheek. Yeah. So maybe you got a cheek tie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So in terms of, um, back to your question around, um, lip tie, um, there isn't really much evidence at all to support that lip and cheek tie cause problems with breastfeeding or speech. Okay. Great. A little bit around tongue tie, but we, we look at um, movement and function. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, Stridal. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Stridal, Stridal in Nubra. Yeah, so Strider can... Um, Result from a few things, so it could be that there's a blockage. Some but what what is airway. it? Sorry, just it's when a child is breathing and it's got like a really kind of almost like high pitched, uh, like it almost sounds like there's something blocking like the a, airway. Like high pitched. I think it's. Is it inhale? Well, it can be inhale, but it can also be exhale so there could be a few there's a I think there's a few different types of strider mm-hmm. um but yeah it can be on inhale or exhale although this isn't my specialty area around okay. strider so in terms of strider um I would be wanting to know what the cause is so I would go to a GP the GP would um get a bit more information you know has there been any infections or is you know what birth premature birth it could be a whole range of things so and then the child might be referred to an ear nose and throat specialist and need a scope to look at it could be something happening at the level of the larynx 
Okay. Voice box, as people call it. Yeah. Less of a um, speech pathologist role, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I would be more chatting to a doctor and you know some through. Yeah. Got it. Open mouth breathing and speech has does open mouth breathing have any impact on speech? It can. Again, sorry to keep. Um, Deflecting, but um, no, so with <laughs> mouth breathing, again, I would be wanting to know what's the cause of the mouth breathing. Um, some children are mouth breathers due to allergies. Mm-hmm. A lot of the kids that I work with or the kids that speech pathologists see, the mouth breathing um, ties in with large tonsils and adenoids. So adenoids are tonsils that are kind of the, in the, sometimes called them the pharyngeal tonsils there at the they're in the pharynx which is at the back of the throat and essentially what happens when you're making speech sounds is although our mouth and our lips and our tongue are moving there's also stuff happening at the back of our throat so you've got something called your soft palate that lifts up and it makes a seal with the back of the throat or the adenoids um, to stop air coming out of the nose for certain sounds and then we've got other sounds that we make where we want air to come out the nose so mm. if a child has really large tonsils and adenoids sometimes um, what happens is the um, air is not coming out of the nose when it should and then they've got this kind of uh Nasally, yeah, nasally, yeah, nasally quality, yeah. Um, so and it can also, it's important that if your child is a mouth breather, um, and does have that presentation with the large tonsils, um, having a listen to when they're sleeping and making sure that they don't, if they're snore, if they're snoring in a very loud sleeper making sure that they don't have sleep apnea because that can result in um, well, make kids really tired during the day, but also um, it can impact their development. So mm. generally um, I find that ear, nose and throat specialists, ear, nose and throat ENTs will remove adenoids if um, there's suspected sleep apnea. They don't always remove them if the child, if it's just impacting their speech, because as children get older, um, they don't rely on their adenoids as much for that seal at the back of the throat. Um, yeah, and and also, again, you've got the surgery and then sometimes what happens is the adenoids are removed and then the child has air coming out the nose for a few months. So, again, wanting to... Oh, yeah, and large adenoids can also... Um, lead to it's also linked in with the middle ear infections again mm. um and then when the child if they've got middle if they're yes yeah, so it's all linked like yeah. the nasal and the oral cavity are tied together they you know they're all linked those processes that are happening at the larynx as well so yeah it can also cause some swallowing and bite issues so Sadie has like a little purr I don't know if you <laughs> heard it but she's got this she's got this like her resting kind of sound sometimes can be a bit of a purr like something's gone on I, I you just made me think of it and I'm like Mal, someone just have Mal a look at is her purr. the 
the mum who would find every little thing. <laughs> She's so far got a stutter, a purr, <laughs> sleep apnea. <laughs> Well, no, she sleeps well, so I don't know. With the, I'll, I'll ask you a bit more about that one later. <laughs> you need to book in a consult with she's, Tess. She's a feline. <laughs> Our next question, which you have kind of answered a lot throughout our chat anyway, some really clear early signs to look out for if there's going to be a speech delay. Um, yeah, so speech in terms of the clarity, so coming back to the clarity of the child's talking. So with children when they're um, learning sounds, so some children, it's, it's children make predictable errors with their speech clarity that are really typical. And then once they get to a certain age when you would expect those errors to resolve, that's when you say they've got a delay or, you know, a phonological like disorder. Hostable. Yeah, they'll leave out, um, they might leave out syllables of really long words. They might say, oh, I want to go in the tar instead of the car because children really young will produce sounds, um, sounds that are usually made at the back of the mouth. They'll produce them at the front. But it's when the children get to an age when you would expect those sounds to have resolved that they then come and see us. Um, but, yeah, some children also, you know, neurological, there's like motor speech disorders. So some children, um, it can be structural as well, but they might have to come and see us because yeah, whole range of things. But generally by four, um, you should be able to understand a child should be clear with their speech. Mm. So they should be 100% intelligible to a um, to another listener with still some age-appropriate errors though. So they might still be calling it a wabbit instead of a rabbit or saying I have a sore thumb instead of a sore thumb. Um, and, you know, at three, if a child's difficult to understand, I would um, recommend going to see a speech pathologist because that's when some of the frustration can start to occur. They're at kinder. Mm. What about pretty... stage? You've got a few words that you missed. <laughs> <laughs> I still call them wabbits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, At pronunciation. So, or you might call it pronunciation. Oh, pronounce <laughs> castle, tomato, tomato, potato, potato. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know this listener. Um, I'm not sure what, I don't even know the definition of pronunciation, to be honest. Mm. But at what age would you worry about the pronunciation of words? So they may mean, does, is that, are we talking wabbit here? Or? Yeah, well, it could be the pronunciation of individual sounds. Um, so if a child is making distorted sounds, like they have a lisp, um, that's not, t- um, you know, if they're four and they've, they've got a lisp, that's not typical, I would, that. They might need to see a speech pathologist then. Um, but, yeah, if the child's three and they're difficult to understand or they're four and their speech still isn't clear, I would recommend seeing a speech pathologist or, yeah, if they're late with their talking milestones or they're having difficulty understanding simple instructions, I'd go and see a speech pathologist as well. Okay. We're really interested in this one because um, being heavily pregnant, sometimes we're reverting to TV with our kids. Yeah. (laughs) Have a little bit of a break. Um, But I I mean, I've got a friend that um, 
he watched so much Sesame Street that he developed an American accent and he literally, I, I don't know how this even works, but he still has an American accent. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. Yeah, so technology. So technology. Speech. Hmm. Yeah, so technology, I guess too much of anything isn't good. So if the child is spending all day in front of a screen, I wouldn't recommend that. But to say to parents no screens before a certain age is a little bit unrealistic and can put a lot of par- a lot of guilt on parents, um, you know, when you're trying to cook dinner or breastfeed your other little one Mm. um children need to um you know have some downtime if you look at what I do in a day some pointless mind-numbing scrolling so children don't have to be on at all times but I would just think about limiting it and if the child is having some downtime and they're watching a bit of tv have the tv on perfect once the tv um, once they've finished watching that show, whatever it may be, turn it off and so you don't have that background noise and then pull out a game. So make sure you're still on the floor having those opportunities for play. Get your child involved in the house routine. So might slow you down a little bit, but, you know, yeah. get them involved. Like talk about what you're doing in everyday routines when you, you know, I don't know if anyone cleans their car, but washing the car or um, <laughs> I never wash my car, but um, <laughs> while you're folding the washing, well, they might watch what you're doing while you're cooking dinner. But, yeah, I think limiting it is important. Okay. But in terms of, like, not being setting too, too many harsh, um, unrealistic expectations on yourself because if a child is in front of a screen all day, it will impact. It's not going to positively impact their speech and language development. Yeah. Okay. okay. Great. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> so all day bad, five hours Here a day fine. <laughs> Here and there. Okay. Uh, when you're not just really as much watching. as you would eat ice cream. <laughs> how how much do you I've been really getting um involved in this um, really yummy chocolate ice cream lately so <laughs> so our final question for you is tips and tricks for parents for optimal learning development and speech I know you said reading is a big one but yeah uh, so I've touched on the reading I've touched on um I've touched on, yeah, following your child's lead when they're playing and, you know, talking about the things that they're interested in and the things that they're holding. Um, Like I just mentioned as well, I think I mentioned play. So try and find time in a day to play and interact with your child Um, if you're finding hard to find time. Uh, it might, like I said, get them involved and talk about the things that you're doing on the walk or um, part of things that are already established as your everyday routine and interactions. But get down at their level so that they can see your face and speaking really clearly. And that's when you don't have that background noise constantly going. Um, Not to say that songs and music aren't really great for language as well, but 
that's when those are the times when you might have the TV off if if it's not if no one's actually watching it. I would I would just turn it off. Um, what else can you do? Um, Sorry, but that's just really interesting. You've just made me think of a lot of the time when I speak to Sadie, we'd be side by side, like we're either in bed and we're chatting, or we're maybe I don't know, maybe she's not looking at as my opposed face, face to face. Face to face, probably communications. You've pointed that out just earlier, looking at your face, getting to their level. That's Yeah, yeah, establishing some of that eye contact and that eye gaze. It doesn't, you don't have to be like staring yes. into their eyes 24-7. Um, but being present with your child and, you know, sitting on the floor. It, I mean, more, yeah, like being at their level and, you know, if they're, tiny little baby and they're on the ground um you know sitting on the floor with them getting some cushions out they can still be you know side by side as well um but yeah that's really important and play um plays such a fabulous way to establish or play you can do so many things it helps children learn about you know different social cues but it also can be used to help them you know negotiate and talk so encouraging um, interactions with their peers as well. So opportunity for them to play with their cousin or for them to play with other children, um, play groups, kinder, um, mother's group, yeah. the park. Yeah. And it all links into a previous episode as well with sleep and the association with like play that is rich Mm. and often and how it can impact positively Mm. on then baby's sleep as well and toddler's sleep Mm. yeah absolutely and um um there's so many opportunities for children to talk during play um even some of the things I do with parents we're like we talk about what toys they have at home it's actually been easier during COVID because they can show me I'm like oh that's perfect but you know they'll make requests so they'll ask for things and you know you can give them choices around things that they want to do and things that they want to play with and then they've got to use their words to you know ask for things and ask questions and um, some children who aren't talking yet they might take your hand and take you to the item or they might point to it some children don't do those things so we work on establishing um, ways that they can show the the parent things that they want Um, but you don't have to put too much pressure on your child to talk if they're not talking so you don't have to ask them a thousand questions in order for them to learn to talk Mm -hmm. Um, if anything I often say to parents all right Let's ask less questions because instead Just of asking, what's this, what's this, what's this, when they actually don't have any words yet, they might have one word, mum, I just give them the words. So if they're holding the texter, texter or verbal up. So as you're doing those actions, you can use gesture as well. Um, there's so many opportunities to talk throughout the day with your with your child and you know if they're with grandma or if they're with um at childcare, like we often work with childcare, childcare um staff or kinder staff as well to help support children's children's language. But really with language, um I should plug children are it's what we call a biologically primary skill. So we are predisposed 
we have predisposition as humans to learn to talk. Mm. Um, most children don't need speech therapy to learn to talk. They learn to talk through their interactions um, with their and through their environment um, with parents, with you know all of those interactions and ex life experiences. Um, so if they're not learning to talk, um, we we have a look at. Um, a range of things but we'll work with the parents to do um, use certain strategies that's going to promote um, more talking or encourage more talking okay. and I just had another thought then when you were chatting about all of that is do we need to be mindful to not speak for our children like when others are speaking for them because I you mm. can see you see a lot of parents answering the question like before the child even gets the chance to answer. Say if someone asks, got like goes up to them and says, hey, how are you? And yeah. then definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, so a lot of the children that I work with that have um, language difficulties, uh, you know, they might have cognitive difficulties as well. So they, they need extra time. They need extra thinking time to sometimes process, um, process a question or process a direction. So give them opportunity to answer. And it gets harder when you've got more children and, you know, sometimes they talk for the child that has the communication mm. impairment. Yeah. And then, yeah, we give some strategies around that. But, um, but yeah, definitely encourage, like allow your child to time to talk. And if the child has... Um, if they have a communication difficulty, if they're stuttering, don't talk for them um children can get really frustrated they have really good awareness early on when um parents aren't like when they think they're not listening to them or if they think that the parent is um not listening to what they've said but listening to how they've said it so if they're stuttering they're, they're not doing this stuff on purpose if there's if they're stuttering or if there's a speech sound or um you know difficulty with vocabulary so it's important to be patient and be patient. This is yeah. golden information yeah. for me. Probably my favourite thing that I've taken from this combo because <laughs> Sadie, Sadie gets asked questions all the time and I'll, I do give her a second to answer, but it's, it's like I just don't want the awkwardness of waiting for that person. Like, yeah, well, you can. And that we're in and a fast-paced like, world. A lot of yeah, fast-paced world. Yeah. yeah, and you can give them options. So children love to have options. I often trick them into thinking that they've come up with ideas, but I've actually sabotaged one of you know the communicative <laughs> temptations. But um, you know, you might give them options around things that they want to eat. Even um, you know, do you want the I don't know, do you want a sandwich or do you want a banana? Um, so you're giving them the options, and then you've got what we call forced choices <laughs> so they've got they've had the language modeled for them um but they've got opportunity to to respond yeah your child's going to be such a genius with all of your like golden information because all of the stuff that you know about speech and development it all kind of just so intrinsically links with so many other values and morals that are important as a parent Mm. Connect. Yeah. yeah like it yeah. all child being present yeah. yeah yeah being responsive to your child um but yeah also like parents are bloody busy <laughs> like parents are so busy and tired and 
they're just often trying their best and um yeah you have to be supportive of that as a community I suppose yeah we do um, village like support around mothers so it's not all on them perhaps yeah all language and speech because if you are the primary carer and you're the mother who's spending the most of the time with the child you're going to feel really responsible for a lot of in comparison to the father who might just see the child for an hour or yeah. two in the afternoon. Yeah. And I no, I can no doubt that the mother will be the one who's seeking out the speech yeah. pathologist and then doing all of the homework. Yeah. <laughs> and a speech pathologist will never make a parent, well, they shouldn't anyway, never make a parent feel guilty for anything for, you know, for not doing the therapy homework. Like I've been to the physio I don't think I've ever once followed up the exercises honestly like um it's it's yeah it's hard and people are so busy and then the kids are at school and they've got that homework like you tr- we try and fit it into their schedule and yeah it's around working with the parent around what's going to be most effective um and achievable yeah, yeah. I think when I was a new grad I was like what do you mean uh, in my head I was like what do you mean you haven't done your homework like but <laughs> therapy homework and like especially at the moment um stress and anxiety is um all-time high I would say in terms of parents are really concerned I, I work with parents that are already really concerned about their children because their children um are already the ones that see a speech pathologist see a psychologist see an occupational therapist have a pediatrician have a whole range of um, things on top of the everyday trying to go to school trying to make friends and all of those things so it's really important that um, we factor all of that in and especially after this climate with uh, COVID happening yeah have you have you seen an increase in in a need for speech pathologists because of less interactivity and less occurring schooling, like yeah. face-to-face mm, yeah so because I work with um school-age children as well in supporting them with their literacy skills uh because kids aren't at school they're not at school um these are students that already need support and yeah parents are already worried so that's also a reason that the wait lists are really long at the moment. Some children who may have finished up on a caseload aren't at the moment because they haven't been at school for so long and parents are very hesitant to end therapy if it means that then the child won't be able to book back in. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's why, yeah, as well, if you are concerned, um, get your child on a wait list um you can always take them off um get them on multiple wait lists we we say at the clinics that I work at like we recommend going on multiple wait lists um because we would never want a child to have a longer delay of therapy and early intervention is really effective like we do a lot around prevention um you know, it's all around early intervention to support long-term outcomes. So anyone that's considering a career in speech pathology, um, sounds like it could be Jump a on board. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's a really good profession. Um, 
so diverse, like you can be in schools, you can be in kinders, you can be, you know, we home visits, we're in the clinic, you can work in a hospital. Um, there's so much to offer. Um, you, you know, I was always a little bit of a nerd at school, wasn't it, but um, I was always really interested in English, but also science. And it's a really good combo for the two, to be honest, it fits me to a T because I'm really bit of, like interested in the grammar, but also interested in like the body and like how things work and the why. Yeah, it's awesome. Mm. Yeah. All right. Um, well, we have some final questions that are a little bit different. Uh, have you heard of the St. Magella Soulful Six? Yes, I have. have. Yes. You're a listener. I'm a listener of the pod. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I forgot. I don't really think about them for myself. But anyway, <laughs> just go with what comes to your heart. So uh, can you tell us the most inspiring place you've been? Uh oh. Hard. Um, probably somewhere out of my what? What is it? Ten k bubble. But um, <laughs> uh, I think it's fifteen k bubble now. But oh, there's been so many amazing places. We did some hiking in France in the Pyrenees. But I would probably say this little town that my grandpa's from in Italy. Oh, I just think. Tell me. Tell me. It's called Amalia. Oh, which Amelia, uh, which north, close to close to Cinque Terre, oh, however you say yeah. it, and it's just such an amazing little town. And just to think that, you know, he travelled to Australia not knowing one word of English after the war, and yeah, it's just amazing. And, and now looking, been there a couple of times. I know how beautiful he's been. Yeah, so <laughs> you know all the words of English. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> about all <laughs> is that even possible <laughs> oh. okay so what gives you a brain orgasm what gives me a brain orgasm um i think like discussions even like discussions like this and like talking with people who are passionate about things like i find people who are passionate about it can be about things that aren't necessarily speech pathology related, but just to have passionate about something that they do and you can have an intellectual and stimulating conversation with them about that topic and learn from them. I find that really stimulating. 100%. Yes. You can see, oh. you can see when someone's passionate about something and it just clicks you in, doesn't it? It's yeah. Like, yeah. All of a sudden I'm interested in Slater bugs, <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah. Honestly. When um, you're not t- talking about other people or trivial crap. Gossipy shit. <laughs> yeah. Like I don't like talking about, like I'll talk about my friends to them about, you know, things that are going on in their life, but I'm not a gossiper. Mm. I don't find that. No, it's, it's like, no, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Like it doesn't make you feel that good. Does it? So I'd much rather have these stimulating conversations with people. Amazing. What about your favorite soul nourishing ritual? At the moment, uh, just like the morning walks along the beach mm. with my dog, who's part of my family. I forgot to mention that at the beginning of the podcast. Um, <laughs> Wally, the, the sausage dog. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I think like morning walks along the beach are 
definitely a soul nourishing ritual with a coffee as well. And sometimes for me, just no technology and not talking. I talk a lot. I'm a real talker. So <laughs> sometimes that silence is really good and just listening to a podcast on a walk. Wonderful. Mm, cool. Speaking of nature walks, if you could take a nature walk and chat with anyone dead or alive, who would it be? See, if I was taking a nature walk, <laughs> I would have to do it with David Attenborough. Honestly, like he's mm. just Mr. Nature. I feel like, and his voice is really calming. So mm-hmm. you know, find that. Like he was, and he's like, and the whales. Like I just, <laughs> <laughs> I just, I find his voice like soothing in a way. But anyway, oh, so, so soothing. Yeah. Um, so maybe with him. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, and what is one way you integrate sustainability into your life? Um, so minimising plastic um, at work. One of my um, employers, she's a real greenie. We do a lot of composting. Um, and probably the biggest one for me over the couple of years is not trying to be, not buying, like not no, no fast fashion or minimising it as much as possible. Like I've got this thing of all my work clothes that have to be it's like op shops or from like hand-me-downs from various various friends and family members um yeah so really trying not to buy into that fast fashion and yeah fast fashion is dead man yeah yeah and yeah wearing pretty much actually (laughs) (laughs) yeah um a little bit of target you know but (laughs) i think that yeah and you know, not using any products that are, you know, trying to use sustainable products as well, sustainable clothes. Yeah. Mindful. And finally, your greatest achievement. Now, I know most people who you've had on this podcast are mothers. Um, <laughs> maybe my dog. No. Um, <laughs> I, I think just being like really happy with like who I am as a person and that sounds like a bit weird no, actually but fair. just like being like happy with who I am and not feeling like I have to be someone who I'm not oh, if that makes sense yeah just like when you're a teenager you feel like oh we still try oh, to look yeah. the same with our hair and <laughs> <laughs> just being like just being me, I guess, yeah. Such an achievement. I love that. That's a perfect thing to finish on. We love your achievement because it's brought (laughs) us together and we've learned so much today. Thank you so much for your time. No worries. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the St. Magdala podcast. If you love this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. You can also join us in the shift from depleted mother to nurtured mother at www.saintmagella.com, on Instagram at saintmagella, or by sharing with a mama friend. Speak soon. Bye.